Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's show, Raj Husanian interviews Jan Garfinkel. Ross serves as the Chief Investment Officer of the Helmsley Charitable Trust, an $8 billion foundation dedicated to increasing access to healthcare. Jan is the founder of Arboretum Ventures, a $700 million healthcare-focused venture capital firm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
Arboretum focuses on investments off the coast, targeting companies that seek to reduce healthcare costs in devices, diagnostics, services, and IT. Before they begin, Roz and I discuss her discovery of Arboretum, attractive qualities of the firm, and positioning in Helmsley's portfolio. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Ross, great to see you. Thank you, and it's great to see you again, Ted. I'd love to hear how you came about investing for the first time in a healthcare venture capital fund based in Michigan. So it's the based in Michigan part that's interesting. And it has to do actually with the fact that when Helmsley was formed as a foundation, we actually could not get into the Silicon Valley venture capital funds. They had their set group of people and LPs with whom they invested and trying to get in there took an act of God. The chairman of our investment committee was the iconic Linda Strumpf from the Ford Foundation. She made phone calls. She was able to get us into one fund, but it was pretty hard. So we thought, well, okay, let's see if we can find other managers with whom we can invest. And it might be interesting to have a perspective that's not one of the coasts. The Midwest is actually one of the areas in which we are a grant maker, the upper Midwest. So looking for managers in the Midwest was not that big a stretch from the orientation of Helmsley generally. And we put the word out through our networks and Jan Garfinkel's name came up and that's how we found Arboretum. And the fact that it was associated with the University of Michigan and was in Ann Arbor made a big difference. Ann Arbor is quite the little incubator location for venture capital. So it all just fit and it worked out well. And what were the characteristics compared to so many other smaller venture firms that aren't on the coasts that you could have selected at the time? There were a couple of things. First of all, there weren't that many venture capital firms that had been founded and nurtured and grown by women. Number two, she came at it not from a financial standpoint, but from the technical standpoint. She was a a biomedical engineer. And to be a biomedical engineer at the time that she selected that as a major was pretty unique. And it was something with which I could identify. But more importantly, she was looking at deals that were different from the source for venture capital firms on either coast. They were looking at coastal entrepreneurs. She was looking at entrepreneurs in the Midwest. We knew we were going to get differentiation of deals as a result. And that was a significant characteristic that hewed us to her organization. So both you and Jan 
had at the time and obviously continued to work your way up as women in finance and financial services. And we know that's in a minority and people are talking a lot more about that now. I'm curious, are there commonalities that you saw from your experience with her that led to both of you being successful in the industry when so many women haven't had that type of prolonged tenure? Probably the most important part Neither of us thought about our genders as a particularly differentiating factor. I wanted to go into finance. She wanted to go into biomedical engineering. We didn't think of ourselves as women going into these fields. We thought of ourselves as people going into these fields. And the significance of that is that it did not allow us to victimize ourselves. So many times when things happened in our careers, it would have been easy to say, oh, that's happening to me because I'm a woman. No, it's happening to you because it probably would have happened to anybody in your position. But if you look at everything through the lens of some immutable characteristic, then you'll victimize yourself faster than anybody else will. So by thinking of herself as an engineer and then a venture capitalist first, and secondarily as a woman in these fields, and the same for me, I think that's what led to our success. And then the rest of it is we worked hard, we were diligent about everything that we did, all that other happy stuff that leads to success. When you first backed Jen, it was really early on. She's now had a number of funds at Arboretum and some great success along the way. And I'm curious what you saw as success factors that led you not just to back her initially, but then to continue to re-up in subsequent funds. First of all, she made some great additions to her team along the way. And Tom Shahib is one of them, and he's brought a tremendous technical capability to the firm. And we saw that some of the deals that they were doing had changed as a result of his addition to the team. Second, they actually accessed deals in areas that were significant for Helmsley. For example, one of the big challenges in rural healthcare is actually access to healthcare. So technological solutions to provide access was something in which Arboretum invested. And that was one of the things that kept us very interested. They've also done some work in type 1 diabetes, which is one of our disease areas. So that was important to us. We've partnered with the firm in the sense that we've introduced them to our grantees in order to create that virtuous circle. And they've been more than willing to do that with us, talk to our grantees, provide investment advice to them as they're beginning to commercialize, and then follow them all the way through. That has been something that's been helpful all the way around. How do you think about the position sizing of a venture capital manager in the context of both your venture capital, say, sub-portfolio, and then the portfolio for Helmsley as a whole? I'd like to say that there's a precise science to it, but there isn't. And the way that we size our positions is we start out with how much is the GP raising? We want to be at least 5% of the fund. Sometimes that's not possible with a firm like Sequoia, but we want to be at least 5% of the fund. We want it to have significance to us. Otherwise, it's just a benefit to the manager, not to us. So there has to be something that fits from that standpoint. Second, healthcare, longevity, and 
everything associated with it is one of our themes. So we're looking to emphasize investments in that area. And we're pretty picky about the managers we select. So when we find a manager with whom we like, we're not afraid to allocate to them and ask for allocations that we genuinely want in hopes that we'll get them. So it's as much an art as it is a science, but we don't have very many managers. Our portfolio is pretty concentrated. We tend to have fewer managers. We tend to have bigger positions with them and to try to do more things with them. So we're an important client to Arboretum and they're an important client to us. We don't have very many healthcare venture capital firms based in the Midwest. There are only ones and we're sticking with them. Well, great, Ross. Thanks for bringing Jan into the fold and great to see you as always. You take care, Ted, and hope to see you soon. Jan, I want to start with, what did you major in college? Yes, and thank you, Ross. Again, I really appreciate being here with you today. I majored in biomedical engineering, and this was a very long time ago, almost during the dinosaur age at this point. It was actually a brand new major at UC Berkeley, which is where I went. And I really loved pre-med and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was thinking about being a physician and I was actually accepted in the College of Engineering. And so I picked bioengineering since it was the closest thing to pre-med and you know, it's sort of half pre-med and half engineering. It was 50% women because there were two of us in the major. <laughs> and now it really is. It's more like 55% women, which is terrific. And when incoming college students now, a lot of them go into bioengineering and many of them are women, which is fantastic. That's fantastic. So when you graduated, what were your thoughts about what you were going to do? Well, I really wanted to work in medical devices, but we're talking late 70s at this point. And there were not a lot of medical device companies like Medtronic was just starting. And I had two job offers when I graduated from Berkeley, neither of them in medical devices. One of them was going to work for a big oil company down in Houston and all these big cowboys with the hats and the cowboy boots were coming in, you know, and trying to recruit me. And I grew up in San Francisco. I just didn't feel like I was a cultural fit there. And then the other opportunity was to work for Procter & Gamble manufacturing Pampers. And so my first job was as a process engineer. This is when Pampers did not yet have tape on them. So my first job was installing these humongous, they're called taper machines on these very fast paper manufacturing lines. And I had two technicians that were in their 50s that were both men. I was 21. I was female. And they reported to me and we had to install these huge taper machines on these very fast assembly lines. And we did that over a year. And then I was promoted to a production manager. So I was responsible for newborn and toddler diapers, working rotating shifts. I had 40 technicians reporting to me. I worked with this. The rotating shifts was just a crazy thing where you work graveyard and then swing, and then days, it's different each week. So you never get in a regular sleep cycle. It it was one of the, that's where I learned to drink coffee. And (laughs) it was so hard, but I did that for two years. And then I went off to business school. You can only do that in your twenties. And I just became a great, great aunt. And I don't think I will ever change a diaper again without thinking about you as I put the, the tape on the disposable diaper. That part, I did not know about you. So you did that for two years and then decided grad school had to be easier than working (laughs) three different shifts, three different weeks. So where did you go? 
And what did you major in in business school? Yeah, so I went to Wharton. Wharton is a finance school primarily, so we yeah. have to do finance, and that's what I did a lot of. But I really majored in strategy and marketing. Those were sort of the sweet spots for me that I really enjoy trying to figure out how to help a company be successful. In the marketing side, it was really more strategic marketing, I would say, really understanding the customer, figuring out how you talk to them, figuring out what products they really want, all of those kinds of things. And I really enjoyed learning all of that. So after you completed your MBA, where did you go to work after business school? Well, so Wharton has great companies that come to recruit and Eli Lilly came to look for summer interns. So I actually did a summer internship at Eli Lilly. And it was at this point, Lilly was a very successful pharmaceutical company. But back, this is now early 80s, they wanted to acquire some medical device companies. They thought that they could potentially be a broader healthcare company. They were very progressive in that idea. So I worked in this little tiny group of five people that was looking for acquisitions in the medical device space. And it was like the summer intern that basically made my career because I ended up identifying this little company out in California that made angioplasty equipment. And angioplasty is equipment. There are these little balloons that you can put into the coronary arteries to stop a heart attack. This was one of the very first companies to develop this product. And so I identified the company. I started doing diligence on it, but then I had to leave to go back for my second year. So when I graduated, I had an offer from Eli Lilly to go back to that acquisition group, which would have been terrific, I think. But I really wanted to go back to the Bay Area, and that's where this startup was. So I reached out to the founder of that, and I joined. It was called Advanced Cardiovascular Systems. I was employee number 19 at this little angioplasty company out in California. And it was terrific, led by a wonderful guy named John Simpson, who was the physician who founded it. So I worked there for six years, and Eli Lilly did buy it about a year after I was there. So while you were working for this angioplasty company, what would you say was the best experience you had while you were there that set you up for what came next? It's a hard question for me to answer because when you're employee 19, you are involved in everything. One of my favorite things about startups, and I often tell young people this, is if you really want to learn how a company works, go to a startup because you get access to all the different departments. So I started in marketing but I ended up doing clinical research and I ended up doing sales. I, you know, I was there for six years. And so I launched probably 20 different medical products while I was there for those six years. And that was because I was involved in so many different aspects of the business. And so I learned how to get from a product from concept to market sell it both domestically and internationally, how to get reimbursement, how to get FDA approval. I learned all of those things because I was in such a small, it grew a lot, obviously. When it got bought, Eli Lilly put a lot of resources into it. So to be able to see a product from concept to FDA approval and actual launch is a terrific experience. And if you really want to learn how a business is made, I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to see the whole process, including the manufacturing, just all of it. And so I was lucky enough to get into a company that was a rocket ship and ended up being able to see a lot of those different aspects. After you left ACS and Eli Lilly, where did you go next? So the physician that had founded ACS, John Simpson, came up with another idea. So he asked me to write the business plan for his second company. 
And so I did that and that was called DVI, um, Devices for Vascular Intervention, all these very sort of (laughs) generic names that we then abbreviate into an acronym. So DVI, instead of ballooning open the coronary arteries, it was shaving out the plaque, sort of like a little rotor-rooter kind of device. And then you could remove that plaque that would accumulate in the coronaries and you could send it off to pathology and see what was in it. It had results that allowed for longer term success. The problem with angioplasty is that it would come back pretty quickly. It's called restenosis, it reblocks. With atherectomy, which was what this technology was called, it would shave it out and it wouldn't rebound so quickly. So it was better for patients from that standpoint. So, anyway, I wrote the business plan for John. And then I joined DVI as head of marketing and clinical research for that particular device, led the PMA trial, got PMA, the big clinical trial approval, and then launched that product worldwide. My group trained all the physicians worldwide on how to do it. And Eli Lilly also bought that company. (laughs) And so I was six years at that company too. So 12 years total. You eventually got up the gumption to start Arboretum. So let's talk a little bit about when did you figure out that that's what you wanted to do and how did you do it? So after ACS and DVI, I ended up getting married. (laughs) He had moved from Chicago to, we dated long distance for two years. He then moved to San Francisco when I got this job at DVI and went back to, he's a physician and went back to where he had done his fellowship, which was out here in the Bay Area, which was when we met. And after a couple of years, Mike said, you know, Jan, I moved here for you from Chicago, and I'm really unhappy in this position I'm in. Since he went back to where he had done his fellowship, they still sort of treated him like a super fellow, but not an equal. And so he said, you know, it's my turn to look for something. And I said, okay, you know, anywhere in the Bay Area or Seattle. And he found beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I was a very reluctant trailing spouse moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan, And what had ended up happening was ACS and DVI were bought by Eli Lilly, but Eli Lilly bought some other companies in the cardiovascular space. So I would say ACS and DVI were on the plumbing side of cardiovascular devices because they're in the plumbing, the, the arteries of the body, but they also bought some companies on the electrical side. These are defibrillators and pacemakers and things like that. So they bought companies in those spaces. So Eli Lilly decided to spin out these eight companies that they had ultimately bought into a new company through an IPO, and that was called Guidant. So Eli Lilly owned 20%, the New York Stock Exchange public markets owned 80%. And so this was all happening just as Mike and I were moving to Ann Arbor. And so I stayed with Guidant and through the IPO, but now in Ann Arbor, and I moved back into sales because I didn't know what else to do. I literally did not know one person in Ann Arbor or in Michigan. And it was really hard in the beginning, but then I ended up having three little girls. I had a single and then I had a double. So I had one and then twins 18 months later. And it was really hard. My girls were all, now they're all in their twenties. They're super healthy, but they were all born early. The twins were nine weeks early. They were tiny. My littlest one was two pounds, 10 ounces. And so I just felt like I just couldn't do everything. So I literally quit guidance and stayed home to take care of the kids because I just had to. And when the twins came home from the hospital, finally, you know, several months later, the head of marketing for guidance called me 
and said, you know, Jan, would you just do some consulting for us? And so I'm literally double nursing the twins. I've got my 18 month old on my lap. I've got my phone to the ear and I'm like, you know, I could maybe do 10 hours a week. (laughs) And so he said, okay, great. Anyway, I ended up doing consulting for eight years and it started in marketing, but what happened was guidance started a venture group. It was called Compass. And I ended up doing a lot of diligence for Compass, writing white papers for them they were probably half of my consulting practice. And then the other half was the state of Michigan was trying to get on the map with healthcare. Michigan is super automotive focused, all the big, except for Tesla, all the big automotive companies are there. And at this time, and so this is the late nineties, each state was getting tobacco dollars because there was a huge class action suit and every state got some money. So Michigan got $70 million and they said, let's see if we can create a whole nother industry here. So they started what was called the life science corridor and they were giving grants and loans to a whole bunch of healthcare startups. I love helping early stage healthcare companies. That's really my favorite thing. And so I helped probably 12 or 13 of the Michigan based healthcare companies get started. And then there were two venture funds in Michigan that were focused on healthcare. And so I was doing diligence for them. Through all of that, I thought I would love to work for a venture fund. The two companies I had been at had both been backed by venture. And I just thought that would be a great way to have sort of a broader impact. And so I tried to get a job at both of them. One of them, the senior gentleman wanted to become governor of our state and he did. So he shut his fund down and that was Rick Snyder and governor of our state for two terms. And then the other was a group of folks that kind of didn't know what they wanted their legacy to be. And so when they both said no to me, I was leaving one of them. And we live a couple miles from downtown Ann Arbor and I, I love to walk. So I walked home and I just like, I, this is ridiculous. I'm going to just start my own venture fund. I literally walked home, went on the computer, went to irs.gov, filed for a tax ID number and started Arboretum. I was like, I'm just going to do this myself. If I can't get it, I'm going to, it can't be that hard. <laughs> oh my word. Well, now that you said it can't be that hard. Looking back, now what would you say? It can be hard. (laughs) I mean, I was so naive, Roz. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally had no idea what I was doing. Well, that in a way, that was good because if you did, you might not have done it. And we might not be having this conversation today. Absolutely true. I often say naivety is blessed, but... What I did know was I really wanted to change healthcare. And my big aha for me was at this point, the cost of healthcare was starting to climb. It was about 12% of GDP. This is now 2002. And I just had this fundamental belief that through innovation, we should be able to drive cost out of our healthcare system, but still provide great clinical care. So I thought a venture fund was the way to do this. And so I thought I'll find companies that can drive costs out of the healthcare system and still provide great clinical care and I'll invest in those. And so luckily one thing that happened was another mentor, one of the gentlemen from one of these two funds said that he would mentor me when he heard I was starting the venture fund was starting Arboretum. And so he said, the very first thing you got to do is get a partner because no one is going to invest in a single 
person who has no venture experience. Yeah, I have a lot of success as an operator, but not as a venture person. And so I put an ad in what was called VentureWire at the time saying I was looking for a venture partner to join me in Ann Arbor to help me invest in healthcare companies. And I got all these smart biochemists, PhDs from the Bay Area, but none of them had run a venture fund either. They were just sort of interested. But Luckily, the person who ended up joining me is Tim Peterson. And Tim had worked at Wolverine Venture Fund, which was a venture fund contained within the business school at Michigan Mm -hmm. that was started through a gift from Sam Zell. And Tim had been the executive director. He had founded it. He had started. He'd run it for four or five years. He'd probably made 10 different investments over that time. It wasn't you know a lot, but it was a lot more than I had done. And so Tim joined me very early. And luckily, this life science corridor was still underway. And so the Michigan Economic Development Corporation wanted a couple more venture funds. And so they ran a little RFP process There were 17 applicants and two winners, and we were one of the winners. And so the state of Michigan helped us. They basically said, go raise $5 million. And once you raise that $5 million, we'll give you $250,000 to cover your legal and your travel. So Tim was still working at University of Michigan at the Wolverine Venture Fund. I was still doing consulting. And then we were trying to raise $5 million so that we could get this $250,000. So the first close on Arboretum One was $6 million. And where did you get the money? We got the money from high net worth individuals that were 50,000, 100,000 kind of investments in us. They liked our story. And then the bigger ones were, we had three foundations in Michigan where the chief investment officers just loved the fact that we were focused more on the Midwest at the time, now we're you know, more national and international, but at the time we were much more focused on Michigan and the Midwest. And they loved the idea that someone was willing to really try and find healthcare companies in the Midwest and would really be focused on that. So each of them put in 500,000, Guidant put in 500,000, Stryker put in 500,000, wow. which is, and so between those three foundations and Stryker and Guidant, we really needed those. One thing that we did that I think was super helpful was we created an advisory board, which were folks that knew us, that really believed in us, that were going to cover the different disciplines within healthcare that we were investing in. And so this included another great mentor for me, Bill Hawkins, who was then the chief operating officer of Medtronic. He mentioned that summer internship again back at Eli Lilly. He had just graduated from Duke and was one level above me. I'm the summer intern. Then it's Bill Hawkins. Then it's three or four other people. And then it was Ron Dollins. And these gentlemen, I mean, Ron was on three of our funds as an advisor. Bill's been on all five of our funds as advisors. And it makes all the difference in the world when there's people can see that you have advisors that are, are very successful and they really believe That's in you. Legitimate. You said before that you wanted to change the nature of healthcare. So talk to us a little bit about how that informed your philosophy of investing. There's a lot to this. So, you know, in order to be successful in a venture fund, you have to make money for your investors. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of the most important thing. And so the way to answer this question for me, Roz, is twofold. One is we always knew that that was the most important thing. If we were going to go from fund one to fund five, where we are now, and 
Fund one ended up being $25 million. So we closed on the six, but it ultimately ended up being 25. But now our current fund is 250 million. In order to be successful to bring in new investors, we had to make sure we were making money for our investors. So one of the really important things that has informed us to this day is to find companies that are very capital efficient. And by that, I mean, they don't take that much money to get to the exit. That's kind of the core of it. And in the world we live in, in healthcare, many of the exits are in the 200 to 400 million dollar range. So it's pretty simple math. If we want to make four to five to 10x times what we invest, the amount of money into that company can't be more than 20 million if it's going to sell for 200 million or 40 million if it's going to be exiting at 400 million. And it's pretty simple, but it's hard to develop a company that capital efficiently. The beauty of being in the Midwest and focusing primarily on Midwestern companies is that it takes about a third less dollars to develop the company in the Midwest because salaries, rent, vendor costs, just all those things all combined, you basically get an additional 1x return on your investment by investing off the coast. That's cutting to the chase. In order to implement that, what kind of staffing were you looking for to help you implement that vision and philosophy? It's a great question. And as you can well imagine in Ann Arbor, there's not a lot of people that already knew how to do venture. So Tim was teaching me how to do venture. We were homegrown. I mean, we are totally homegrown. Everybody that we have brought in, we have taught them the Arboretum way. But the people that we have brought in and come from healthcare backgrounds at the analyst level, which is the entry level for the investment team or associate, one of those, they've come from Eli Lilly and financial planning. They've come from consulting for LEK. They've come from Optum. They come from experiences where they've worked in healthcare companies and they already understand the jargon, they understand the financial planning of it. That's been primarily the entry point at the low level. And when we've tried to bring in people that are just like bankers, that hasn't worked out nearly as well for us. At the higher levels, we've had these great advisors on each fund. One of our advisors in fund three was Tom Shehab. And Tom, Tom is just Wonderful. Tom is a GI physician with a specialty in liver, and he is also an incredible healthcare administrator. And he was at Trinity Health System, St. Joe's in Ann Arbor, and he was targeted to be the next CEO of this huge private specialty practice with all these physicians in it, like a thousand physicians. And yet he was also our advisor. And When we got to a point where we said we need to bring in somebody who's been living the Affordable Care Act in particular at that point, because that was making a huge difference on access to healthcare. Many more patients were coming in, but that was also the time when the costs as the baby boomers were getting older. Now healthcare is 18% of GDP. It's just horrible. I mean, it just keeps climbing and we've got to figure this out. So Tom had a perspective on healthcare from living it from the inside. And we felt we really needed that at Arboretum. So we all got together. We went out and went to our favorite Mexican restaurant in Ann Arbor. And we're all talking like we could pick the perfect person to join Arboretum. Who would it be? And we're all like, 
Tom, she had, so I called Tom, he was rounding, it was a Friday, and I'm like, hey, Tom, I have like a crazy idea, but I really want to ask you, and he's like, oh my God, and he was literally going to become CEO of this big private specialty practice shortly, like within months, and he's like, let me think about it, I'll get back to you, and he was like, sure enough, he wants to change healthcare. I think that's one thing at Arboretum, the passion about healthcare is is palpable. So he came with zero knowledge about venture. He came in as a principal to our fund. He didn't even come in as a partner. And he said, I'm going to look at this as a fellowship. I'm going to learn everything I can about how to do cap tables, how to do term sheets. He's really great at evaluating new technologies, obviously. He didn't know any of the strategic corporations that would buy the companies. We had to introduce him to all of that. But what Tom has done phenomenally well is build his own deal flow And any GI deal in the United States comes to Tom Shehab because he knows GI so well. He knows all the physicians. And the other thing he's really passionate about is women's health, which is really great. So all these women's at his first exit, two years after becoming managing partner was a women's health company for ovarian cancer, young woman CEO who just knocked it out of the park, Boston Scientific bought it. So Tom has just been fantastic. And then we've just recently brought in Nicole Walker. And Nicole is a traditional medical device investor who was with Baird Ventures before this and then Abbott Ventures before that. And she's fantastic. She comes out of the Guidant family. Honestly, Roz, the big thing for us is do we fit culturally with each other? Do we have the same values? We feel we can teach anybody how to do venture, how we evaluate companies, how we help the board level. We can teach all of those things. We want to make sure they're cultural fit from a personality standpoint and a work ethic. I think that's that's so critically important because one of the things that resonates is exactly that. When we go to the annual meetings and I'm interacting with the various Arboretum staff people, I feel that. And I don't feel that with every GP annual meeting I go to. I would just simply say, when it truly is a family, you can feel it. When there is that internal consistency about values, you feel it. And I think that's a major contributor. So let's talk a little bit about business management. You had a lot of business experience before you came, but now aside from an investment philosophy, What is your business philosophy for managing Arboretum? We view it as a professional services company. I think one thing that's really helpful is Tim came from a consulting business before he went to run the Wolverine Venture Fund. He had seen some great experiences with how to run a consulting business. I had incredible experiences having been at ACS and DVI and seeing how you take care of the employees. We just really incorporated, I mean, even things as simple as doing annual reviews. There are a lot of venture funds that don't do annual reviews. It's kind of crazy. We give a lot of feedback. We're very team oriented. Whenever we work on a deal, it's a senior person. So the managing partner, the principal, and then an analyst or an associate. There's three people on every team. We try and give the junior people many touch points, working with different managing partners and giving them experiences where they are taking leadership roles at early stages. I mean, that greatly impacted my career to be able to have done that. And it's really important. So things like when we're talking with physicians, who are the experts in a new technology we're looking at, we'll have them lead the questions 
in the diligence process. That's a lot about making sure the teams are working well together. Everybody has their Monday meetings. At our Monday meetings, we have a staff meeting first where even our admins are all there. Everybody knows everything going on about Arboretum, everything that's happening that week, every deal we're looking at. And then we break into the investment team. We go through all of our portfolio companies every other week. And I think one other unique thing about Arboretum that I would say that I think is super important is we want to have conversations, discussions that can be somewhat tense at times. And by that, I mean, Roz, I find it very important to ask the difficult questions in these meetings. Now, it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable for me being really honest when it's a lot of people. I like smaller groups when I really want to work something out. So depending on the sensitivity of the, the question that's being asked, it may only get to the managing partner group. But I really want advice of the other team members at the managing partners, you know, Tom, Nicole, Tim, Dan, I want to hear what they think about this problem that I'm trying to solve for one of my portfolio companies. It's super important, but I have to be vulnerable to say, I don't have the answer to this problem. Please help me to do that. And I, I think it's hard for people to admit they don't know how to do something or they don't know the right solution to a problem. And at Arboretum, we've really tried hard to make that okay. It's important to have conversations because there's a lot of brain power amongst our senior people to help solve these problems. So every week we have a managing partner and or senior staff meeting to talk about these really hard problems. We've had companies go sideways, figuring out how to solve it. Do you switch out the CEO? Do you bring in consultants? What do you do? Do you stop investing? These are super hard conversations. And so we try and create safe environments where you can talk about these things and really come to the best decision based on hearing the input from your other team members. Your first fund was $6 million. You're now at $250 million. Walk us through how you set your fund sizes. So the first fund, actually, our first close on our first fund was six, but the total fund, because we kept raising, was twenty-five. We then raise funds every four years. I know a lot of venture funds have sped that up recently. We haven't done that yet, but we want to be sure we can be successful in the normal range of exits for healthcare. I mentioned it's that 200 to $400 million range. It is pretty consistently in there. So based on that, each successive fund, so fund one was the 25, fund two was 75, fund three was 140 four was 220 and five was 250. The, we probably won't go much bigger ever than 250 because we find that that will be really hard to be successful because of the normal range of exits with our companies. The one caveat I will mention there, so let me back up two steps. When I say healthcare, it's a very broad discipline. Where we invest is roughly 50% in what I would call the regulated, meaning FDA approved side of healthcare, which is medical devices and diagnostics. And then the other 50% is the unregulated, so it doesn't need FDA approval, but healthcare IT, life science tools, which is equipment to make pharmaceuticals, healthcare service companies. And then we have this new category called pharma adjacencies, which is companies that play in the pharma space, but it's without a drug. So they have the same upside potential because pharma has big upside potential, but without the binary risk that the drug would fail in phase three. 
And so we have two companies there, Strata and Pair, that are you know really in that space and have done extremely well. And so because of those, we could raise a larger fund for Fund 6 because they don't take that much more money, but they have such huge upside potential. So we, we always want to be top quartile in the results that we provide back to our investors. And so we've maintained that 250 because we felt that was where we could be sure to be top quartile. And we were worried if we raised a bigger fund, it might be more difficult to do. But I think with these pharma adjacencies, we have the potential to perhaps go bigger. We've done onesie twosies in the pharma space. So we are not driven by the fee. We are driven by making sure our investors are successful and then we get rewarded with the carried interest that comes with that. And I'm a little concerned that funds are more driven by the fee. We return all the capital first to our investors and then we get into the carry. We just want to make sure our investors are always first and maintaining the appropriate fund size is the only way to do that. So one of my favorite questions to ask money managers is describe the quintessential Arboretum deal such that it's got the characteristics where, yes, I, as one of your investors would say, yeah, that's an Arboretum deal. No, that's not an Arboretum deal. It is a company in one of those disciplines that I mentioned that can be very capital efficient won't take a lot of dollars to get to a successful exit with a fantastic team that is in a space that there's not 10 other venture deals in. We want to be in spaces where there's only one or two venture-backed companies. And we can talk more about examples of that. And half of them would be in the Midwest. Usually they're in the Midwest, but not all of them. And some of our most successful ones have been coastal and really trying to drive costs out of the healthcare systems. We're trying to remove 20 to 30% of the cost of that procedure or of that technology with our investment. That's a lot. That is a big number. And so we spend a lot of time kind of analyzing that. I would say that's it. So it's off the coast, capital efficient, in a space where there's not a lot of other venture-backed companies, solving a big problem and cutting costs out of the healthcare system. Well, that's a pretty tall order for a little company. So share with us your favorite deal, the one that you're most proud of, and talk about how it hit all of those points. We invested in a company called Pneumotics, N-E-U-M-O-D-X, that was founded by an incredible CEO, Jeff Williams, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Jeff had been previous CEO of two of our other companies that were very successful, Handy Lab and Accury. And so Jeff had this idea that in the world of infectious disease, SARS, pneumonia, COVID, there's a lot of things, but he came up with this idea that when you take a sample, whether it's saliva, blood, whatever, and put it into the infectious disease robots that are in these clinical labs in the hospital, it takes a long time to get a result, too long. And they're very manual. You need a high paid lab technician to move the sample around, put the reagents in, which are these chemicals to identify what the bug is, et cetera. So he came up with this fully automated robot that had all the reagents in the robot 
and you just literally put the sample in at one end and 45 minutes later, it will tell you what infection that patient has. It revolutionized how clinical diagnostics are done in hospitals now, literally revolutionized. And he came up with this idea. He filed the patent. He approached us and Jeff is very dear to Arboretum. He's actually one of our advisors too. And I made four phone calls to clinical lab directors and asked them, you know, if you could design the perfect infectious disease robot, what would it be? And they described exactly what Jeff had already invented. I'm like, okay, great. We're going to do this deal. So we put 5 million in on a 5 million pre Jeff brought in an incredible team from Acury and Handy Lab. He brought together like the band and because they had so much experience on how to do this already, they basically, in what would normally take three to five years to develop this robot, they did it in about a year, super capital efficient. We then brought in Series B, which was Baird and Pfizer, and continued to develop the product. Then we brought in one big strategic corporation, Kyogen, and over this roughly seven-year period, developed the product, and then COVID hit. And what pneumotics did when the advent of COVID started, we were putting all the consumables into the back of a trucks and driving them to different hospitals down in Detroit because they were using the pneumotics robot, but they didn't have enough consumables. And on Saturdays and Sundays, we were driving the product down because if you recall, when COVID first started, Detroit was a huge hot spot and they couldn't test these patients fast enough. And with the pneumotics device, they could test 300 patients in one shift. And that was phenomenal. So they were basically doing a thousand patients a day with the pneumotics robots down at Henry Ford. So Kyogen ended up buying the company, but the reason I'm so proud of it, it was this, the right product at the right time for sure with COVID, although that wasn't our investment thesis. It was the fact that you could do this infectious disease testing on any patient with just putting the sample in, let the technician walk away. And 45 minutes later, they have the result. They didn't have to do anything. Everything was done by the robot. And so it greatly expedited the ability to give therapy to a patient in a much more timely manner and didn't require a heavy lift by the clinical lab to be able to do that. There's no other company that was able to do that. So it was just a phenomenal experience. And I will forever be thankful for Jeff for including us in all of his companies that he's so excited about. And when you look at the exits of Arboretum, it's so interesting, Roz, because I think we've invested now in 50 or 55 companies. We've had about 20 exits, but 15 that were in sort of the five to 10 X range. And when you look at that, half of them are a mile from our office. Being in Ann Arbor is a great location. And The reason why they've been five to 10 X is because we're in the Midwest and these are Midwest companies. We're able to get that extra one X or two X on the exit return to Arboretum because of them being so capital efficient. So I wonder if you could share with us some of the other deals that you've done. You talked about the ovarian cancer company. That was one where I was at the annual meeting where that company presented And I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about that. And again, how it fits within the Arboretum philosophy and deal characteristics that are unique to your firm. Sure. So that company was called Envision, little N and then Vision. And it was started by this incredible CEO named Serbi Sarna. 
And Serby, I think, was 27 when she started the company. And she had, when she tells her stories, this is in the public domain, she, when she was 13, had an ovarian cyst and got worked up because they wanted to make sure it wasn't ovarian cancer. And she decided at that point that she would figure out a better way to detect ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer is super hard to detect because women's bodies are designed to have children. And so you can have things growing in your abdomen that it takes a while. They can get pretty big before you really notice them. And so ovarian cancer is often detected at stage four when it's really too late to help the patients. And so Serby was a biomedical engineer out of Cal went to guidance, learned how to make catheters, went to a startup, learned a little bit more about the startup world. And then when she was 27, started Envision. And she developed this little catheter that could be put into the fallopian tubes and go all the way to the ovary and could detect ovarian cancer at a very early stage. And so Serby had approached us for the Series A it was a California-based company. I had met her. I really liked her, but we really like to see some human data before we'll invest. She had no human data at the time. So she raised a little $3 million Series A from another woman, venture person, Health Catalyst, is I think is her name of her fund, out in Boston. And Darshan is great. So on $3 million, Serby went down to Mexico, did human patients, 40 human patients, and got FDA approval on those 40 human patients in $3 million. And then Serby came to us and said, okay, now I'm going to raise series B. I'm going to raise $14 million. And we saw the human data and we're like, she was able to get the cells. They were able to read the cells. It was terrific. And we said, okay, great. We'll invest. And so we were the series B lead and let's prove that you can get cancerous cells because she was only getting normal cells. And so based on that, Serby was able to enroll at three sites, women who had masses on their ovaries to see if we could get cancer cells. And sure enough, we were able to, and they were able to show that they matched to what was happening clinically. And with these women were having their ovaries removed. So we could also match them to what was going on in the ovaries. This is again, the first time anyone has ever been able to detect early ovarian cancer. Boston Scientific ended up buying the company and it was literally two years after we had invested and roughly about four years after she had started the company. So remarkable, remarkable story and phenomenal product for women's health and for being able to detect cancer at a very early stage. Let's talk about some deals that have not worked out well. So a really big one and probably the hardest part about what we invest in is reimbursement. And devices, unlike drugs, have to go through a whole separate approval process with Medicare, CMS, Center for Medical Services, and they're the ones that determine reimbursement for new devices. And so if we invest in a new medical device, we spend a lot of time now trying to figure out reimbursement because to get FDA approval, we know that that is a well-worn path. We know how to do that. We know how to work with the FDA really well, how to develop the clinical trials to support getting FDA approval. The problem is it then takes three more years after getting FDA approval to also get reimbursement approval. And CMS I would say makes it challenging, very challenging to get that approval. So we often will only invest in companies if there's already a reimbursement code. If we have to also go through the reimbursement path, 
it will add another up to $50 million to that company's development and timeline, but cost to develop that product to get reimbursement approval. When we diligence, we really look at reimbursement a lot now. And the learning came from a company <laughs> that I led called Sonatus that was a hearing company. So this was for patients that have single-sided deafness, so they can't hear in one ear. There is a device that's already on the market by Cochlear that you can use your bone structure to hear. So if you scratch your head, you hear your hair moving around. That's because your bone, your skull is transmitting these sound waves to these little hairs inside your ear that tell your brain that you are listening to something and you hear noise. When you have single-sided deafness, that's not working. But this really smart engineer, Amir Albafathi, figured out that you could use your teeth, which are bone, in order to hear. And so he developed this little device that went on your back tooth and it sent a signal to the ear that was deaf. And then you would hear as if you're hearing from both ears. And it replaced this post, like this screw that would get screwed into the back of your skull by Cochlear. Cochlear had reimbursement approval. So we invested in this company in the Series C. It was for commercial launch. I mean, this was a late stage company. And one of the big strategics was super interested in it. They had a big investment already in the company. And we went to try and get reimbursement. We tried the patient pay model first, but it was an expensive product and patients couldn't pay for it. So then we thought, well, let's get reimbursement. And we were denied reimbursement, even though logically we should have been approved because cochlear was approved, but cochlear was approved because it required brain surgery basically to implant the screw. Ours was this little device that you just slip on your tooth. It was half the price. It was easier for the patient to manage. It gave you better hearing if you had single-sided deafness and could now hear through better ears because your microphone was where your ear was instead of behind your head where the sound does weird things when it goes around your head. And we couldn't get reimbursement approval. And when we couldn't get reimbursement approval, it killed the company. So we had to shut it down. We lost $10 million. It was one of the most disheartening experiences of my life because it was half the cost and better for the patient. How could this not be approved? And it was a reason why. So our Congress when they wrote the Medicare laws said they will not reimburse for eyeglasses or hearing aids. We have to patient pay for eyeglasses and hearing aids. They will not pay for any of that. And even though it was not a hearing aid, like the traditional hearing aids, it was only for single-sided deafness and it replaced a procedure that was being reimbursed. They viewed it as a hearing aid and that's why they denied it. We tried to appeal We could have sued them. It would have been so much money to do that. And we just said, it's probably just not worth the squeeze. The juice wasn't worth the squeeze. That was so concrete in terms of making sure that there is reimbursement approval. Has it helped you be better to spot companies that would have a problem getting reimbursement approval? We have found some great reimbursement consultants that really help us with this now. And so prior to close, we'll do a sort of condition of close, which is get reimbursement experts to opine on the process, the data, the probability of success. We tend to primarily invest in companies that already have a code exists and it's just a new product in an existing code. 
we would prefer that to having to go down the reimbursement path ourselves. But if it's a special circumstance, we still will do that, but it's much rare. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the industry in general. And I know that you've got a very good perspective on it because you've given back and you have served the venture capital industry. Why don't we talk a little bit about how you've done that? I actually just stepped off the National Venture Capital Association board. I was on that for five years, my last year as board chair. And that was an incredible, incredible experience and led to not only working with the other board members, it, you know, it's a big board, it's 25 board members. And Bobby Franklin, who's the executive director of that, has done a phenomenal job trying to make it a very diverse board. So actually, when I joined five years ago, I walked into the first board meeting. I thought I was picked because I was female, honestly, and they wanted diversity from that. But it was about a third female already at that point, which was great. And these are women like me that have started funds. They were all managing partners. I mean, it was the senior women in the venture world across all disciplines. But I was diverse, much more so because I was the only person from the Midwest and I was in healthcare, which was maybe 20% of the board. And my early days on the board, I really didn't know that many of the folks because they were from a lot from tech and software and whatever, climate, lots of different areas. But these were just terrific people. And I was pretty vocal, especially in the early days, about how hard it is to start a fund off the coast. It would be really great if there were more best practices that could be shared nationally about how to do term sheets, how to do succession planning, how to hire, how to just everything about how do you professionalize venture. And I think through that vocal experience that I had and a lot of positive feedback from the NVCA team, which is an incredible team, by the way, I also got the experience to go lobby on the Hill through that because every other board meeting is in Washington and you literally go meet senators and congressmen and congresswomen. And it is a fantastic experience. I, I actually shared on one of my very first early lobbying experiences, I was meeting with a Republican congressman from Ohio and told him the sonatist experience I just shared with you about not getting reimbursement. He actually wrote a bill to try and get CMS to approve new technologies that would reduce the cost of healthcare. So I was just like, this is incredible. I tell one story and literally I get back to the office and they call me the next day. I'm like, he wants to write a bill to try and address this. I'm like, okay. They're like, can you help us? I'm like, I have no idea how to write a bill, but NBCA helped. It didn't get through, but anyway, it was a terrific experience. And when I became chair, it was fantastic, but it was The term is June to June. So in March of 2020, COVID starts to hit and I'm still chair and the world exploded, right? For all of us come March 12th or whatever that day was, March 11th, and quickly evolved into trying to figure out if the PPP loans would apply to venture funds. I had to do a lot of work on that, a lot of webinars, a lot of talking with again, senior people on the Hill and trying to make sure that the rules of who could apply for the PPP loans were applicable to venture-backed companies if they needed it. So it was just an incredible experience. I got to testify in front of Senate on the importance of investing off the coast and how to build new entrepreneurial communities off the coast. 
I got to work with the lawyers that were trying to develop the tax package that Trump was instituting and sort of the impact that could have on the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So it was having started our freedom and doing a first close on $6 million 20 years ago. I never in a million years would have thought that I could have had that as a pinnacle of my career. It was pretty awesome. I'm now going to shift gears again and go back to learning a little bit more about Jan, the Wonder Woman. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to get to know you as a person better. And the first one is, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love to bike. My husband loves to bike. So we have a place up in Northern Michigan. And that is my favorite thing to do is to go to Leland, Michigan. We have this great house up there that overlooks Lake Michigan and the Manitou Islands. And um, we just love biking in Northern Michigan. We love traveling and hiking. One of my goals is to go to all the national parks in the United States. I'm about a third done and hike all the great hikes. I love being athletic and moving and seeing things. And so kind of all wrapped around that. What is your most important daily habit? Well, three guesses. It's exercise. I get up and work out five, six times a week, running, biking, Pilates, lifting, whatever. And then recently I just started meditating with Headspace, which I just love. It's just 10 minutes a day, but I have really incorporated that into my daily routine, which it's fantastic. I have to exercise first because I can't calm down enough to meditate well otherwise. But right after I exercise, I meditate for 10 minutes and it's fantastic. Headspace is a great, great program. So what is your biggest personal pet peeve? So I didn't know how to think about that. My pet peeve of myself is where I kind of ended up. I'm kind of an impatient person and I get really mad at myself when I lose my patience and, you know, don't show as much compassion as I should. This happens to me when I get hungry (laughs) (laughs) and it's gotten better with age, but I, you know, if I get into that stage where I'm just like starving, like if I go into a restaurant and then I have a reservation and they, yeah, don't monitor the reservation and, oh yeah, then that's my personal pet peeve of myself. What is your biggest investment pet peeve? My biggest investment pet peeve is CEOs that are not truthful or not forthcoming. And if any of that happens, we pass like quickly. There's so many good companies coming our way. Like it's just not worth taking the risk, but it's all about trust in these companies. And if I get any signal at all that there's not going to be a sense of trust, done. We're, we're out of there. So hopefully that happens during the diligence process enough so that we just don't invest, but it's happened to us twice where we've invested and the company's gone sideways and it, we really lost trust in those CEOs only twice out of 55 companies, which is pretty amazing, but it was enough for us to learn. You got to listen to your gut. What is the biggest personal mistake you've ever made and what did you learn from it? So this is going back a ways here, but when I was younger and applying to business schools, I I applied to three. I got into two of them, but I was only waitlisted at Wharton. And so I thought, well, I'm going to fly to Philly. I'm going to go try and meet the dean of admissions and find out why I was waitlisted. And so I did that. And it was a horrible interview, Roz. It was like one of those things. I'm a tall woman and he was a very small man and it was super uncomfortable just anatomy wise. Right, right. And so I 
said to him, you know, that I was here to try and understand why I was waitlisted and if I could answer any questions for him to help him. And he said, oh, well, you were waitlisted because on your GMAT score, your math was lower than your English. And I said, okay. And he said, and, you know, we're just concerned if you could do the math here at Wharton. And I'm like, okay. And I had no idea that was the reason why I was like dumbfounded by it. And that was literally all he said. And then he goes, well, do you have any questions for me? And I asked a couple, whatever silly questions that I had prepared that were sort of softballs. And he said, okay, that's it. We're done. And I'm like, okay. It was like a three minute interview. So I get up to leave. And when I'm upset and I knew I'd blown it, I go for a walk and I just like let my mind kind of wander. And so I went for a walk around Philly and I was meeting my friend roughly an hour later. And I said, Jan, you know, if you really want to go to Wharton, you got to go back and tell him what you really think. So I turned around, I went back, I went to a secretary and I said, can I please speak with the Dean for just another minute? And she called and he said, sure. So I opened the door and he doesn't invite me in. He just lets me stand there from the door. Oh, nice guy. I said, you know, I really appreciated you explaining that it was because my math score was lower than my English score. I said, I just have to tell you, I took four years of math at Cal in engineering. There is no math that you are going to be able to throw at me here that I've done differential equations. I've done extremely complicated math, quantum physics. I mean, like there's nothing you're going to throw at me that I can't do from a business standpoint for math. And Beyond that, I just have to tell you that I only took one English class and one history class in my entire engineering degree because there was just no time for any more. And that was all they required to graduate. I said, once I graduated, I started reading novels. And I said, my English is probably higher than my math because all I've done is read novels over the last three years. And if anything, you should be thrilled that an engineer is coming in with a higher English score than a math score. And he looks at me and he goes, okay, call me tomorrow and I'll let you know. And I got in obviously. So it was a mistake in that I was so not fast on my feet and it was hard for me to respond quickly to him when he threw out what the issue was. But the thing I learned was if you make a mistake, you can go back and fix it, but you need to kind of do it quickly and you need to advocate for yourself in a nice way, but it's super important that you stand up for yourself. I've got two more questions for you and then we'll wrap this up. And that is, What teaching from your parents has stayed with you the most throughout your life? Yeah. Oh, man. I come from a very interesting background. My dad's Jewish and my mom is Mormon and they're very different people, but just wonderful people. And, you know, I think they always, A, they always felt education was super important. And so, you know, obviously followed suit with that and with my three girls, But they always said, do something with your life, like make a difference on this earth and do something that really matters. I feel just, again, so blessed that Arboretum allowed me to have a vehicle to do that. I think being in healthcare, you really do make a difference no matter what part of healthcare you're in. And the last thing I will say, which I have not done as well, but my dad used to always say, you know, 99% of what you worry about will probably never happen. But that really has never sunk in. And I'm a terrible sleeper. And I wish I (laughs) didn't worry so much about stuff. (laughs) I I can relate to that as well. Yeah. The last question, you almost can guess it. And that is, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It sort of goes to that Wharton thing. But you really have to learn to listen to your gut. Listen to trust yourself. I think it takes a while. It's so easy to always question yourself when you're younger, you feel like you maybe don't have 
the right words of wisdom or the right way to ask a question. And you're always insecure about being able to do all that, but it's just really important to advocate for yourself, to learn to have a voice where you can ask questions and or speak up in a way that's not threatening, but that is helping bring to light to a group of people that there's other ways to think about ideas that are being suggested. And it's just really important to find a voice at a table and with senior people, with board members, with junior people that allows questions to be asked to really bring out the best decisions in a non-threatening way is maybe the way I want to say that and to trust your gut to be able to have the confidence to do that. So true. So absolutely true. Well, Jan, a lot of what you shared, I did know, but I have to say I learned a lot as well. And we've known each other now for six years and I have enjoyed being your partner. So with that, thank you for participating and I'll see you at the next annual meeting. And Ross, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for being a great investor and for believing in us when we first met with you six years ago. You've been such a great partner and we look forward to continuing that relationship long-term. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. 